from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Hello Earthlings and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. Um, I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a writer and teacher in Wisconsin, USA. Um, I'm known as Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Today is Thursday, the 25th of March, 2021. And on this show, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. Um, I'm doing something different. Um, once again, I'm recording this live on um, Facebook Live, and I'm recording it at the same time as I'm broadcasting because I just like being able to do both at the same time. I don't know if the audio is coming through, so I hope it is because I'm running the sound clips through voice meter into Facebook Live, and it's so hard to know. This is not to do with gaming. Why does it say gaming? I, I don't know why it says gaming. Um, anyway, yeah, so, um, there's so much I want to talk about today and I want to start by playing a clip from a, um, a guy, uh, not a guy, a, um, a group called Meat Beat Manifesto. And, um, uh, yeah, so if you'll allow me to share my screen, I will, uh, I don't know if I can share my screen. Uh, it looks like I can't share my screen. I'm glad the audio is coming through. Let me just play this audio then from the song. Do you accept your existence on the planet with a certain peace of mind? Well, I accept my existence. Um, I don't accept the situation that I find myself in on this planet now. I think that's a real struggle. The situation being? That I live in a culture which is uh, permeated by dominance and oppression. Uh, and that's not only within my culture, but it's around the world. Okay, so that's the clip I wanted to play. Thank you very much, Roy, for letting me know that you can hear the music. Um, that song is from a group called Meat Beat Manifesto on their best album, Satyricon. And the song is called Your Mind Belongs to the State. And it contains, as you heard, a bunch of people being interviewed by somebody who, the, the refrain, it's probably a sample they just use over and over again. He says, what do you want from the rest of your life? And this album appeared in front of me at a very important time because I was entering new college and that was a time when I started to figure out, as the guy says in that clip, who and what I really am. And he says, in case you can't hear it too well in the sound, I think there's probably a revelatory experience that's awaiting every person that has to do with finding out who and what you really are. And the degree to which that occurs, if it occurs, uh, you're, you reach nirvana slash heaven. And to the degree to which you don't achieve that state of mind, you're in eternal hell. And... I think that's a really important concept 
there is a sign on the wall of the student services office in the school where I teach that says, simply become who you are. And I always like to joke that that's easy for the wall to say. It's a wall. <laughs> but it's very difficult for us as humans to figure out who and what we really are. And that's what I want to talk about today. There's also a really great uh, Alice in Wonderland um, moment where she meets the caterpillar. And I'll play you the audio from that here. <laughs> who are you? Well, I, I, I hardly know, sir. I've changed so many times since this morning, you see. I do not see. Explain yourself. I'm afraid I can't explain myself, sir. Because I'm not myself, you know. I do not know. Well, I can't put it any more clearly, for it isn't clear to me. You? Who are you? Well, don't you think you ought to tell me... <coughs> who you are first? So that question of who you are is a very deep one, and Lewis Carroll knew it. Um, I, it. This all came flooding back this week because if you watched any of my previous Facebook Live events... Um, or listen to the Sincast, you know that I went deep into a documentary called The Vow, which is about this um, cult, basically, called Nexium, run by a guy named Keith Raniere. And I did a video a while back where I connected that to Trump and the MAGA crowd. And I, for some reason, <laughs> went looking for a podcast called Escaping Nexium. And there's a part in that that really touches on this question, because... Um, let me just play you the audio of this uh, excerpt of this. So it follows the woman named Sarah Edmonton, I think her name is, or Edmondson. And um, she is also the focus of the HBO documentary video series called The Vow. And at one point in the podcast, they play an audio from her wedding. And all of her friends from Nexium are there in the wedding and they're, they're doing this dance. So let me play you this audio here now. Like, it's just really upbeat and positive and... Sarah shows me this video from her wedding of the flash mob. She was surrounded by her Nexium sisters. You know, like fists in the air. Their arms outstretched, eyes to the heavens, huge smiles and self-possessed. We were just so happy, you know, and it was so fun to like bust out into this song and everyone was watching and, you know, we did, we did a flash mob at my wedding. That was a moment. The wedding. These dancers, the vows, the way Nexium was so deeply integrated into Sarah's life. It reminds me of a term my friend Jamie told me about. Ontological security. Wait, say it again? Ontological security. What does that mean? Oh, geez. You want me to define it now? <laughs> it's, a, it's a cognitive need that humans have to feel secure in their identity and stable in their identity. They need to know who they are and what they are. Ontological security. It's a profound feeling of stability and meaning that comes from believing the world is predictable and ordered and you know your place in it. That's what Nexium offered Sarah. It was the very fabric of her identity. What's the opposite of ontological security? Ontological insecurity, which is a feeling of great chaos and uncertainty. It's where you don't know what your identity is. It's when you don't know what meaning is. Meaning is lost and that gives you a feeling of great insecurity. 
And that's what I really want to talk about here is that that moment in the podcast rang so close to my heart because one of the things that New College allowed me to do is to gain I had to go through a period of profound ontological insecurity where I didn't really know who I was. I thought I did. Um, I had a taste of it before entering New College, but my time at New College gave me the freedom to really explore the world and understand it as it was. And that's epistemology. That's what you know and how you know it. It's metaphysics, like what's real and what's not. And then comes ontology, which is like how you be in the world, right? And who you are. And I had a period of profound ontological insecurity where I felt like I didn't know who I was. I didn't know how I was going to make sense of this mess that I was exploring. And then partly through the love of good friends and family, partly through East Timor activism, and partly through reading a whole lot of stuff, I got a sense of ontological security and I figured out sort of what it was going to mean for me to be me. And that's carried me through ever since. And it's not always been easy, but it's been a powerful edifice on which I stand. And, and that edifice is on the shoulders of my ancestors, both blood and honorary ancestors, as Amanda Gorman calls them. And I think that that's something that so many people lack. And I, I, I really wish there was some way I could help other people build an edifice of ontological security because it's the thing that drew uh, Sarah into this Nexium cult and so many other people, not just her, but so many other people too. And it's the thing that draws people into MAGA. In a way, this is what Agent Smith talks about to Neo in their final fight. Like this, it's purpose that drives people forward, right? It's this idea that we have a reason to be. And I think one of the greatest things that causes despair in a lot of people is the sense that they don't know what their purpose is. They don't know what their reason for being is. And, you know, Sarah talks in this podcast about how her, she felt like she had a purpose. She, she first got into the, the group through this cruise that was all about like finding your purpose. And she thought she did. She spent 12 years in this organization because she thought she had found her purpose. And I don't want to go too deep into Nexium here because it's not just about Nexium, really. This is, and it's not even just about MAGA. It's about all of us. All of us are looking for that ontological security, that, that edifice of confidence that we know what we're doing and why. Like we know what purpose we're serving in the world. But the, here's the key. It's, it's something that almost nobody can achieve fully on their own. But paradoxically, <laughs> you have to figure out for yourself what that purpose is. If you're going to have a sense of ontological security, it cannot be handed to you by someone else. That's the paradox. Because that's what Nexium did. This Keith Raniere dude said, I have a purpose for you. And I will explain to you how to think so that you can find it. And for 12 years, Sarah thought that it was the key. And I think that's what made Donald Trump so appealing is that he gave people something to belong to because that sense of belonging is really powerful and we all seek it out. Um, it's not just a right-wing thing. A lot of people find that sense of belonging and sense of purpose, that ontological security, through 
political activism on the left. I certainly did, right? Now, I happen to find a very benign group of people working on a human rights issue with a specific goal. And they did not ask me to sublimate myself to the group. They did not ask me to give up my you know, life savings or career path or, or anything like that. And it, it also so happens that that organization's goal was reached right as I was entering the sort of the end part of my educational process. So it all, I got very lucky that it all sort of meshed in that way. But I do think that, you know, there are plenty of people on the left who get involved in like the International Socialist Organization or, um, you know, some sort of uh, kind of active group. Hi, Stu. Hi, Roy. Thank you, everybody who's watching. Um, I got a webcam. Thanks to Stu for encouraging me to get a webcam and Chinny and everybody in the chat on the Veteran Gamers. Let me also say thanks to the Duchess because uh, she's just been amazing. And we I haven't even mentioned this. I woke up this morning at 3.30 a.m. with a leg cramp and then the dog started whining and I had to take him out. And so I haven't had a lot of sleep. It's spring break. I'm very happy that I'm on spring break. I need to start grading papers today. I sure hope I'm not disturbing the Duchess who's upstairs, um, you know, working. Uh, yeah, I made a little printout of the didactic syncast logo for the microphone there. Uh, this is all very strange. And by the way, I also ought to talk about the shootings in Boulder, Colorado and Atlanta, Georgia, because they are horrible tragedies. But on the other hand, what can I say, right? We need gun control. We need to stop allowing psychopaths to get access to high power weaponry. Um, so there's a lot on my mind. And I'm trying to focus on this whole ontological security thing. My my point is that, you know, we find that sense of belonging and purpose in lots of different places. And the question is, you know, what are the organizations that you are a part of doing for you in positive ways? And what negative consequences might they have? What are they asking of you to give up? Right. And I always say, you know, be wary of anybody who's asking you for money because, well, yes and no. Because a lot of times when people are asking you for money, the question is, what are they going to do with it? And so Nexium wanted people to pay, you know, thousands of dollars to go to this weekend retreat to learn how to think differently and yada, yada, yada. But as soon as I said that, be careful of anyone asking you for money, it made me think about um, news sources. And in a way, I don't trust a news source unless it's begging me for money. So Democracy Now! is a very good news source. They're constantly asking for donations. Because... If somebody isn't asking you for money, but they're giving you something, where are they getting the money to create that thing they're giving you, right? So this operation that I'm doing here, making a podcast and broadcasting on Facebook, first of all, it happens because what the world really needs is more idiots on the internet talking about their opinions, right? That's what the world needs. So this is what I'm delivering to the world. You're welcome. But, um, you know, this is a shoestring thing. I printed this thing out and taped it to some cardboard. Uh, you know, I bought the cheapest webcam Target had to offer. It's new tech week, by the way, in my life. I got this fancy new iPhone. It's not actually fancy. It's like the cheapest one they had. But my old one was just not working, right? So anyway, my point is that, you know, every organization gives us ideally, a sense of belonging and, and helps us with that sense of purpose. And this is why I think the Veteran Gamers is, it's funny you showed up right now, Stu. You know, the Veteran Gamers is an organization that I feel very fortunate to be a part of because for 11 years now, longer even, um, we've been chatting about video games. But in that time, we've, you know, seen people meet up and get married 
we've lost friends, we've seen, you know, joys and tragedies come and go, and the community has celebrated the positives and helped each other with the negatives. But that had nothing to do with the initial reason for creating the veteran gamers. It, it was just about like, we want to talk about video games. Mm -hmm. Let's share our conversations with the world. Why not? And now we've got lots of people around the world communicating with us and being part of that community. And it makes me very happy because it's another part of my life that has a positive purpose and doesn't really have a negative consequence. Video games can have negative consequences. Uh, but but I think we've done the podcast in such a way that, you know, there's a little stress when technology doesn't work right. But generally speaking, it's it's very positive. So, again, you know, the, one of the things that Nexium did was that it gave people not only the sense of belonging and, and you know, friends and, and, you know, ways to think differently. And, and all those things are important because I think the epistemological thing, the question of what you know and how do you know it, goes along with that ontological sense of who you are. Because in order for you to know who you are, you have to understand that concept of knowing, right? And this is all pretty deep philosophical stuff. And I'm not an expert by any means. Uh, I probably should be interviewing my friend John Broad about this because he knows a lot more about it than I do. But Nexium also gave people visual and tactile connections to those things that they were becoming a part of. And it was modeled on judo. And I think that's one of the things that really um, appeals to a lot of people about martial arts is that, you know, if you get better at karate or judo, you get a better belt. You get a green belt. You get a, you know, blue belt. I don't know what the ranking system is, but eventually you get a black belt. And if you can say, I'm a black belt in karate, that means something. And everybody knows what it means. A lot of people know. And I think that that's one of the things that, that logos do and insignia and to bring it back to the MAGA movement, which is by now bigger than Trump, because as we see, Trump himself is kind of gone, but we still got a number of people who are carrying that MAGA banner forward. It gave people something to rally around. The icon matters. The, the, the red hat matters. The Confederate flag means something. And you cannot divorce it from all the things that it meant in the past. But it's not only about Southern secession. It's also about, you know, white connectivity and pride in being white in the face of, you know, these questions about, you know, white supremacy and, and the impact of racism. And those logos, you know, this is a logo, this didactic syncast logo matters to me. When we see a logo over and over again, we have, uh, you know, it does, it, it, it imprints on our brains in a way. This is why corporate logos and branding are so relevant. This is why Disney goes after everybody who uses their insignia or their logos without permission. Because they they can't afford to, well, they don't want, they can probably afford it, but they, could, they don't want negative things or, or things they can't control associated with that logo. And that it, it all has to do with that ontological security or insecurity, because I think this is one thing that, you know, a lot of people attach to corporate brands as part of that quest to figure out who they are. Right. So Dave Barry, the comedian, used to tell a joke about uh, when he was growing up, he had friends who were really into cars and they were in two camps. There was the Ford lovers and there was the General Motors lovers. And the people who loved Ford would shout FOMO Coat which is short for Ford Motor Company. 
And the people who did not like Ford, the people who liked General Motors, would shout, Fo no go, as in Ford no go. And they'd have these screaming matches, Fo moco, Fo no go, Fo moco, Fo no go. And we see that same pattern over and over and over and over again. We saw it in the 80s and 90s with uh, Macintosh versus PC. And it's still raging, right? Which phone do you use? I'm an iPhone guy. I'm an Android guy. I'm a you know, Pixel or whatever, Samsung. Who knows? Um, you know, people attach themselves to uh, uh, console, video game consoles, right? I'm a Sony fanboy. I'm an Xbox fanboy. Um, you know, I'm a fanboy of Bethesda Studios or I'm a rock star fanboy. Uh, you know, what kind of liquor you drink is supposed to define who you are. What kind of, what brand of cigarette you smoke is supposed to define who you are. And, and it's not an accident that we think this way because the companies that sell these products have a vested interest in selling you a lifestyle. And that's exactly what Nexium, Nexium did. That's exactly what MAGA did. And by the way, it's exactly what the Democratic Party does, right? The, 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 the challenge of every political party, including Greens and Libertarian Party and the Communist Party and whatever other party you talk about, is that they have a brand. They're selling something beyond just individuals or policies. They're selling a vision of the nation or the community. They're selling a concept of, you know, who we are as a community. And you as an individual get to be part of that vision of the community, right? So this question, you know, it seems like abstract stuff, like it's way back here and then there's real life up here. But in fact, all this stuff back here about ontology and epistemology and like who you are and what you know and how do you know it and what's real and what's not, all those things inform the real life stuff. And I think we neglect this to our peril. I think a lot of people look at philosophy as, first of all, shame on philosophical, um, the people who know philosophy uh, should be ashamed of the fact that they have not worked harder to make it more accessible to ordinary people, right? So much of philosophy is buried behind academic jargon and, you know, people working hard to gain an understanding of a thing and then kind of protecting it. And acting like, well, you couldn't understand it because you haven't read Plato. You haven't read Nietzsche. So you wouldn't you wouldn't get it. You know, there's a lot of that just as in uh, literary criticism. Right. A lot of literary criticism is just justifying the existence of academics whose lives are serving a very small number of people. Right. And it's true also about secondary teachers. Yeah, high school, I'm a high school English teacher. If I can't reach that kid who doesn't care about, you know, writing essays, I it, I can't just assume that he's going to come in and, 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 and accept it. So I'm getting off course. My point is that all of us have an opportunity and I think a responsibility to look at these questions of philosophy. You know, what's real and what's not? How do you know things and what do you know and, and where does that knowledge come from? And um, what does it mean to live a good life? Those are the three major areas of philosophy is ethics. You know, what's good and evil? How do you be good? Um metaphysics what's real and what's not and then um epistemology like what what do you know and how do you know it? and then there's the ontology thing which is kind of a combination of those like how do you be what you know what's the way to be in the world and i think that you know if if i've ever been able to do anything useful in my classroom it's to help my students through writing or through hip-hop or through you know the study of literature to gain a sense of who they are to 
sort through all the things they've been told about who they are and process it in ways that are maybe different, maybe unusual, maybe, um, you know, uncomfortable at first, certainly. Uh, and then, you know, move up on that sort of scale of enlightenment a little bit. Because we're all told a lot of things when we're young, right? As soon as we're born, we're told things, some good, some bad, about who we are. And hopefully, you know, I know I was certainly raised with a lot of love and, and support and encouragement and, and care and confidence. And my, my folks wanted me to know that, like, you can be whatever you want to be and we'll always love and support you. And that gave me that edifice of confidence, right? And then... When I got to New College, I had the confidence and I had a sense of like, okay, you know, education is a great thing. My mom was a teacher. My father was a professor. Um, you know, there was that orientation generally toward knowledge and enlightenment. And that was great. Um, and then I, you know, started to learn more and more about the kind of, you know, I, 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 I was, I had a pretty um, safe and secure little world that I lived in. And, and there was a lot going on outside of it, which, you know, my folks told me about, but I hadn't really seen a lot of it for myself. And um, when I was learning about it, it, it really shook me. And I think that's, that's one of the things that causes the teenage years to be so traumatic is because we're experiencing so much beyond this little world that we're in. And a lot of times we just cling to what we already know so that if somebody challenges something that we believe, we tend to have a sense of, okay, it's going to be, you know, I'm going to keep it at a distance because it, it risks um, shaking up that ontological security. And that's frightening. That's terrifying. And if somebody can be charismatic and um, smart and crafty, they can get a lot of people to buy what they're selling when it comes to that question of ontology. This is like, this is who you ought to be, right? And again, like, look, it's not always pernicious. It's not always evil, right? We, the school where I teach handed out face masks and they all had the logo on them for the school. Every school does this, right? You get water bottles, you get this, you get that, you know, there's, there's logos everywhere. And part of that is because we are trying to give the students a sense of belonging to the school community. And, and the logo is a way to do that. And obviously, a lot of kids don't buy into that because they're just forced to be there, right? And it can ring a little hollow if some people in the community don't feel like they really fit in. They, they're not accepted. They're not welcomed. They're not celebrated. They're not loved. Um, then it has sort of a negative counter effect, right? Because after all, the red and blue flashing lights for some of us mean great security and relief. But for other people, those red and blue lights mean here comes one time to crack your skull open, right? Um, or shoot you if you walk away. So um, I just think that it's very important for us to interrogate this sense of who we are on a regular basis. That's the other thing is that, you know, one of the things that allows cults to thrive and survive, and then the cult is just the most extreme version of this. That's really the point, right? The thing that allows cults to thrive and survive is a cutting off of everything that's not it, right? So that, you know, the Branch Davidians uh, or Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, Chini was into for a minute, you know, not, not, not that he was a member of it. He was watching something about them. I don't mean to imply that. Uh, yeah, no. It, but, you know, 
the, 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 in those instances, you listen to the leader. It's like on the Simpsons, right? When they go and they join the the movementarians, we love the leader. And the, that's a great episode because it shows us how that organization appeals to everybody except Marge. It doesn't give Marge what she needs, but it gives Lisa that, don't you want to get good grades? It gives Bart, you know, a chance to be... I don't remember exactly what Bart gets out of the movementarians, but I know he gets something. Uh, Maggie just loves the leader for seemingly no reason. Um, Homer's, <laughs> they get him with the chant, na 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 leader. Uh, all the other brainwashing tactics don't work, but that one chant does work on Homer. But again, like, you know, they, Marge can't even tell him anything. And and so, you know, it's a cutting off of, of all other attempts to challenge this question of epistemology. And so the, you know, what do you know? You know what the leader tells you. You trust what the leader says. And that's the other thing, this question of trust. Again, on a regular basis, you need to ask yourself, I need to ask myself, we all need to ask ourselves, who do you trust and why do you trust them? Now, as soon as I start talking about this with my students, they say, I don't trust anybody. I trust myself. You, you, you ask uh, anti-vaxxers, which is another thing that's in the news a lot lately, or in my podcast feed, maybe it's not in the news, but you know, there's, there's people who are resistant to this, you know, taking the vaccine against COVID. And, and a lot of times when they're asked, people will be like, I don't trust medical science. I do my own research. Well, that's nonsense. Where are you doing your research? What, what websites are you trusting, right? That's a question of trust. You trust your friends on Facebook, perhaps. You trust a Facebook group that seems like it's logical, right? And But it's still a matter of trust, right? I trust my doctor. I trust, uh, you know, and I don't trust anybody blindly. I don't trust Anthony Fauci 100% on everything because I'm sure there's something he said that I don't agree with and there's a reason why I don't agree with it. Um, but, but I, I you know, I tend to trust people until I have a reason not to. And, you know, my friend Garrett and I have had this conversation about handing someone some eggs and they drop the eggs. Do you give them more of your eggs to drop? Or do you do you wait for them to carry other people's eggs, you know, before you give them any of yours to carry? In other words, does someone have to earn your trust or do you tend to give it right away? And then if somebody breaks that trust, do you tend to forgive them or do you tend not to? And again, like, you know, in order for you to, I think, my own opinion is that if you're going to be decent in the world. And I almost said a decent person, but I don't believe there is such a thing as good people and bad people and whatever. Um, but in order to be a decent, uh, to, to, to behave decently, you have to be constantly asking, you know, what does this person um, want from me? And why do I trust them? And like, why do I believe what they're saying? Like, how can I check these claims? Right. And that's a that's an intensive process. That's something that happens um, over a long period of time. And that's different from the way that politics and society in general works. Right. Because this is what makes celebrity crashing and burning so devastating to so many people. If a celebrity dies, obviously, many of us get horribly pained by that. And it seems odd, you know, you didn't know that person. Uh, what, who do you care? Um, thank you, John. Hi. Uh, <laughs> the, but the, 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 we do feel close to celebrities, right? They, we spend time with them, not actually in the same room, but certainly in the same way that you and I are maybe looking at each other or I'm talking into your ears. 
there's a connection there, right? And we can feel close to, you know, uh, FDR had fireside chats and people felt close to him through the radio, right? Um, people feel close to Trump through Twitter. And so when his Twitter was cut off, people felt a genuine sense of loss. And, and again, I'm not trying to cast aspersions on other people. This is true for me too. I made a joke one time and Ricky Gervais uh, I tweeted at him and Ricky Gervais responded with a hi, pa, uh, we miss you. Um, trust, but verify. Yeah, Jacob. Oh man. So Jacob in the chat here just talked about a line that Reagan gave every time he met with uh, Gorbachev, he would say, Oh, it reminds me of my, hell. it reminds me of my favorite saying from Russia, trust, but verify. And by the third time he said that or something, Gorbachev was like, yeah, yeah. You say that every time we meet. Um, that's from a great book called The Clothes Have No Emperor, which is a day-by-day -day account of everything that happened during the Reagan administration. Uh, that ought to exist for Trump. I don't know that it does, but maybe it does. Anyway, um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, an, it's actually a good phrase. So anyway, I tweeted at Ricky Gervais, and he responded with a, a, a smiley face emoticon. Now, that's not a big deal. It's a colon and a parenthesis, and that's the end of it, right? It doesn't really matter. But... In, in a social ecosphere where people who have a lot of clout for things they've done. So let's leave aside the you know, influencers and the you know, YouTubers who have no real purpose in the world, who don't add anything. That, you know, Ricky Gervais created The Office. That's a big deal, right? He's a good writer. He's written a lot of really important stuff. So I respect him as a writer and I respect his intelligence and you know, his sense of humor in, in a lot of ways. He's said and done a lot of horrible things too. You know, nobody's perfect. Um, no angels, no demons, whatever. Horns and halos, all of us. But the point is that I respect his sense of humor and his ability to write. So when that person, who is respected by a lot of the rest of the world, responds to something I say with more than just a little favorite, when he, t again, it's not much, but the fact that he took the time to write a little colon parenthesis smiley face, that meant a lot to me. Now, of course, that was a one-time thing, but there are other examples from my own life. And again, I'm only mentioning it because I think it serves as an interesting example of how easy it is for us to feel that sense of you know, connection with another person, even though we've never actually met them and haven't even had a conversation with them. That, that's barely a conversation. I tweeted a joke. He tweeted a smiley face. The end. But here's the thing. It's so easy to think that there is a genuine connection there. And to feel a sense of uh, privilege and ownership because of that connection that you sense that the other person probably doesn't because the more followers they have, the more stuff they're probably getting thrown at them. But on your end, you know, on my end, I've only ever gotten one thing from you know, Gervais to me. So I, I think that the social media cavalcade, carnival, whatever you want to call it, is really complicating this question of who we are and what it means to be us. Hi, Stephen. Um, because it's, uh, you know, the, I did a search recently for um, author's birthdays. I show my students every day, here's whose birthday it is. It was recently Douglas Adams' birthday, so don't panic, everybody. And it's Nelson Algren's birthday coming up soon. And so I did a search for like famous birthdays on this date. And then I thought, okay, I'll go through and find out who the authors are born on this date. And the first website I came up with had, all, you know, it was like famousbirthdays.com or whatever. And it, it was just these like teenage influencers on social media. 
so-and-so YouTube influencer, so-and-so Instagram star, so-and-so, you know, whatever, whatever, TikTok star. And it was, everybody had this identity and they were supposedly famous and maybe they are, maybe they have a million followers. I don't know. But, but, but my question is, A, what, what does it mean when someone is a, a star or famous or, you know, meaningful, worthy of our attention? Um, because of how many followers they have on social media. That's A. And that's a kind of minor question, in my opinion. Because, I mean, let's not kid ourselves. I want more followers. I want more subscribers on the podcast. I want more people watching. I mean, you know, that's, I think, a very common thing for all of us to want. That ego boo, as it's called. The likes, the retweets, whatever, whatever. But here's the flip side of it. And this, I think, is much more important. What happens to us when it goes away? Right? What's the downside of that ontological security that comes from social media. Donald Trump learned in a big hurry how significant his social media ontological grounding was. Because when he lost it, he had a crisis. He had a meltdown. You know, if the people, the anonymous sources inside the White House can be trusted, he flipped his lid when he got kicked off of Twitter. Because it was such a core part of who he was. And he had lived so much of his life never being told no, never being denied access to anything, including the White House and the Oval Office, the nuclear codes. So when finally Twitter said, no, we're, we're not allowing you to use our platform anymore, that was a rare thing for Donald Trump. And again, I'll give you a personal example of how this has affected me. I'm a big fan of a comedian named Jen Kirkman. She's very funny, very smart, strong feminist. You know, she jokes about meditation and lots of awesome. She's just really cool. And I made a joke that didn't land. And it's, I won't even bore you with the details. The point is she thought I was being a jackass, which I guess I was, but I was like, wink, get it. I'm uh, pretending to be a jackass, but you know, she didn't know what my intentions were. So whatever, it didn't land. And she banned me from her Twitter because she thought I was a troll. And I don't blame her for thinking that, you know, in hindsight, I was being an idiot. And it's not the first time I've made a fool of myself on social media because I thought everybody knew me. But that and tangent on that story, we'll come back to that story in a second. That's that's part of the problem with social media is that there are so many assumptions and presuppositions that go along with the things you say and do so that so often we hear people or we read people say on social media. I'm sure you hear it if you watch videos, YouTube, TikTok, whatever. I don't watch a lot of those, so I can't say. But a lot of times people are like, well, if you knew me, you'd know I was joking. Or you can tell I'm joking. Can't you tell I'm joking? That was taken out of context. Obviously, I was joking. Well, if it's so obvious, why is there a conflict about it? I mean, don't get me wrong. I know there's such a thing as context. And I know that sometimes people say things that can be taken out of context and that the statement loses a lot when you take it out of context. But on the other hand, I think that with every passing year, we get further and further into this cocoon of hive mind that says you have to when you read a tweet you're not just reading a bunch of words and and assembling it using clear meanings there's so many you know there's so many um assumptions and allusions and references to all of it it's built on these edifices that are constantly shifting and changing and it's all very wobbly and tenuous so for instance if i say to you i found some shrimp tails in my breakfast some of you are going to go, ah, oh, dude, I know, right? Because you know what I'm talking about. And others of you will say, what the hell are you talking about? 
And it will just seem so bizarre. And of course, part of the problem is that the, if I make that joke, some of you who know what I'm talking about are going to go, oh, not this again, because you've heard about it for two days. And now it's a boring old thing. And other people have no idea what I'm even talking about. It is hard to project context on social media, Stephen. Absolutely. Um, so I thought I was being very funny and Jen Kirkman didn't think I was being funny. She thought I was being a jackass. Which again, like if I had stopped, here's the thing. I learned from that experience to stop and look at it from the person's, the intended audience's perspective, right? She doesn't know me. She doesn't know what my assumptions are. She's not going to assume that I'm making this very clever joke. She's going to assume I'm being a jackass. And, and, and at times I've had that same process where I'm like, okay, wait, I'm about to make this joke on social media. If I think about it from the other person's perspective, I can't tell if they're going to know that I'm joking and understand the irony in it, or if they're going to think I'm being a jackass or like worse, maybe they think I'm actually being racist or sexist or whatever it is. And I never want to risk coming across as any of those things. So I just won't send it. And I miss the opportunity to make a great joke. But you know what? I'd rather miss that opportunity to make a great joke than to potentially come across as being racist or sexist or whatever. And here's the last thing I'll say about it before I get back to the point of that Jen Kirkman story. If, if I make a joke and I sort of make some mention of it, try to explain a little bit to like make clear that I'm just joking, I'm, I'm not being sexist or racist, then the danger is that... I might be insulting your intelligence because part of being an intelligent person is being able to decode all of that stuff. And that's why so much of us, so, so many of us love that stuff is because we can read Twitter and we can read a hundred different jokes about the shrimp tails thing and find some new clever twist on it, some take on it and, and, and a connection to something else. I mean, this is what makes memes so awesome is because there's a lot of variations on them and they connect to things that we love from other places. Um, but if I, but, 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 and, and we feel smart because humor in many ways is a two way ego street. If I make a joke and I make you laugh, I feel great. That's an ego boost for me because I've made you laugh. And if I can make you laugh when you don't want to laugh, ha, that's the best kind of laughter because now I am overwhelming your intellect. I am overcoming this barrier you have to laughing at this thing because you know it's inappropriate to laugh at it. But my joke is so well-crafted. It's so funny. You can't help it. I'm sure Matt Stone and Trey Parker live in that zone all the time. Because that's all they do on South Park is just hammer these things they know are like inappropriate and offensive and they, you know, they push it. And The Office did that. And, you know, both the American and British office have done that. And a lot of TV shows and music, you know, a lot of people revel in that. But humor is also an ego boost in the other direction. Because for a lot of humor, at least, you have to be intelligent enough to decode it to really get the joke. And the more esoteric it is, the more rarefied it is. Um, the, the, the more work it takes and the, the more it's, you know, the smaller audience it's actually going to connect with so that, you know, Monty Python doesn't appeal to everybody. It certainly didn't when it first came out. Now Monty Python's become kind of ubiquitous, but for a while Monty Python was, you know, hard for a lot of people to wrap their brains around because it was so weird and different. Now it's become part of our sort of social zeitgeist. 
but it wasn't when it first came out. Uh, same with The Simpsons. Simpsons was, you know, iconoclastic and, and, and unorthodox. And so those of us who loved it in the earliest years, um, we, we, were, we were part of an exclusive club in a way. And that's the magic of humor is that it, it gives us that, again, you know, when you're part of a crowd that's all laughing together, there's a great sense of community and bonding there. Um, same with music, same with religious revivals. So that comes back to this question of ontology. But my point originally with the Jen Kirkman story is this, when she kicked me off her social media feed, again, I was hurt. I was like wounded. I felt terrible for about a week. And eventually I said, okay, what have I actually lost? by being banned on this comedian's Twitter feed. I haven't really lost anything. You know, there's a few times when I had, you know, previously said, hey, I love this mention of feminism or whatever, and she had liked something or she, she may have responded, I don't even remember. But again, like, that's a big deal, right? If you look at um, AOC's Instagram live, the comments are just bonkers. They're just going a mile a minute. There's no way she's reading any of it. I don't even know why that exists there, right? And on the biggest feeds, the biggest, you know, I can see everything going on this social media feed here, right? The chat, when I'm doing this broadcast, I can read everything that comes through because there's not so much coming through. If people chatted more, I would have a harder time keeping up. There's only four people in the chat right now. Thank you, the four of you. As I once said, uh, I only got 12 people want to hear me spit, but I love to serve them up some chopped up bits. Got to show off these linguistic tricks. And I doubled my base a year ago. I only had six. Um, so I'm very grateful for, you know, everybody who pays attention to my ramblings or whatever, whatever. But my point is that that's not really where my belonging comes from. This is not the basis of my ontological security, right? This is something I do when I have a few extra minutes and I'm procrastinating grading papers. I need to start grading papers today. Uh, I'm on spring break, you know, whatever. I won't bore you with the details on that. But my point is that teaching has a lot to do with my sense of ontological security, who I am. I, I realize there's six things that I am. I am a teacher. I am a writer. I am a political activist. I am a hip hop head. I am a video game addict. And I am a Zen pantheistic, you know, being of the universe. And those six things, probably not in equal proportion, but, you know, roughly speaking, uh, those constitute who I am. I am also a son and an uncle and a wife, a husband. <laughs> I call me a wife, whatever, you know, gender's fluid. But, you know, those things are important to me, too. Um, yeah, I don't really have anything to say about that part of it. Uh, there was one other thing I wanted to mention before I finally wrap this up. And it has to do with, um, again, this idea of not sort of buying what other people are selling. Because we're all selling something, right? If I'm, I'm trying to sell you on considering these ideas that I'm throwing your way. Right. I'm trying to sell you on the idea of not buying things from people. Um, and, it, you know, it, ultimately, I have to be I have to show equanimity. I don't know what the noun form of it. I have to be equanimous. Mm, that's not a noun. It's still an adjective. Anyway, I have to show equanimity if somebody rejects what I'm offering. Right. That's part of being a teacher, first of all. But, it, but it's part, of, I think, of being a decent human. Yeah, right. Be a human. Exactly. But what does that mean to be human, right? Uh, Michael Franti had an album called Stay Human. And John Baptiste on the Stephen Colbert show has a band called Stay Human. Um, but what does that mean to be a human? I mean, that's, you know, okay, we're human. Now what? Like, what, how do you know you're a human? Well, whatever. But, you know, 
if, if somebody hears me rambling and they go, I'm not listening to that. I have to be like, okay, that's cool. I'm, I, you know, I'm not going to change the way I do stuff in order to get more followers. Right. And that's why I have four people watching. If I, if I were to build my brand and this is, you know, brother Ali has a rap song where he says, I'm a man, not a brand. And I think that speaks very powerfully to a distinction that's being crafted right now among a lot of people. And I, it seems to me sometimes like, uh, I don't want to say most, cause it's hard to tell with populations as a whole, but there are so many people who seem to be focused on developing their brand rather than developing themselves as people. And Paris, the rapper from Oakland has a song where he says, and he uses a bad word. I will change the lyrics a little bit. He says, um, Forget your views, forget your likes, walk like a panther. Uh, forget your shoes, forget your ice, walk like a panther. Forget your show, forget your flow, talk like a panther. When hard truth calls you, stand up and answer. So he's selling this vision of, you know, especially young black men as being, you know, soldiers in the, in the mold of the Black Panthers. And there's, a, you know, I mean, Fred Hampton and, and, and you know, uh, Elaine Brown and, 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 and activists who, who worked as Black Panthers have a lot to recommend themselves in that sense. Um, and and the, the, I think the basic point to be made there is that, you know, those things, the, the money, the clothing, the, the likes, that's not that's not that's not ultimately what matters in the world. Right. It's so easy to get caught up in the sense that that is what matters. And I'm not just picking on social media. Right. There are some people who spend all their time and effort, you know, making their car look so much better and detailing it and, you know, getting better parts for their car or their PC or, or whatever it is. Um, and, and there are so many rabbit holes we could all go down. You know, a lot of people go down hip hop rabbit holes or or classic rock rabbit holes or, you know, classical music rabbit holes or, or you know, pick something. Crystals, chakras, auras. You know, there's so many things. Um, and I think that my ontology has to do with surveying all of it constantly and pulling myself out of rabbit holes and saying, OK, I'm not trying to just be this one thing. I'm not trying, you know, and some people make fun of it. They say you're a jack of all trades and a master of none. Right because you, you, we respect in our society experts, people who are like the, and this is, again, brings us back to Nexium because Keith Raniere talked about how he was the smartest man in the world. And people talked about him as being the smartest man in the world. And he had proven a lot of intelligence with, you know, businesses he had set up and the way he had scammed people and, and, and giving people tools for thinking about life. Um, but I think that, the danger with that kind of thinking, you know, David Foster Wallace said that if you worship your own intellect, everybody worships something, he said. And if you worship your own intellect, then you live in constant fear. You're going to be proven a, a fraud. And I would add, um, or you're going to be constantly regretful about and, and angry about the fact that you're not getting the recognition you deserve as being a genius. And so I think one of the ways to save yourself from that is what Chinua Achebe said. You must always accept something, no matter how small, from the other to make yourself, whatever you are is never enough. You must always accept something, no matter how small, from the other to keep yourself whole and save you from the mortal sin of righteousness and extremism. And what cults do is they block that off. They say, you sh the other has nothing to offer you. This is the only path you need to worry about. Right. But so, uh, you know, again, so does MAGA, so does the Democratic Party, right? The Democratic Party 
people who are true believers in the Democratic Party will tell you there's no need for us to ever talk to Republicans because they're not interested in compromise. They're not interested in dialogue. Now, hear, hear me out. A lot of times that's true, actually. You know, Oprah said we train people how to talk to us. And, you know, it's it's so uh, absurd for Mitch McConnell to say, oh, the Democrats are creating a scorched earth Senate. That's like Darth Vader saying there's going to be a scorched Alderaan uh, Galactic Senate if the rebels gain more power. Like, give me a break. You got some nerve, right? So we all have to check our own actions before we start criticizing other people. But But anyway, the point is that any organization, any group of people, can get caught up in their own self-righteousness. And we all need to be on the lookout for that. So I feel like I'm repeating myself a lot here and I've been babbling for almost an hour. I do have papers to grade. Um, I thank you all for watching or listening. And as always, people, please get in touch, uh, leave comments, what you think, uh, moments that have been useful to your own sense of ontological security or your ontological insecurity, either on Facebook or Twitter. Um, send an email if you want. You can find my email address. You can let me know if you need it, although email is becoming an anachronism, I suppose. Um, yeah, I don't have anything else to say, really. So I will just say thank you once again. I will shout out um, Stu and Chinny for convincing me to get this webcam here. And I will shout out Diane, the Duchess, uh, for being awesome. And uh, shout out my dog for waking me up. Actually, the leg cramp woke me up, uh, but it was the dog that kept me up and made it impossible for me to get back to sleep. And I'll shout out my students. And, um, oh, I keep forgetting on the veteran gamers to give some people shout out. So actually, let me do that right now here because I don't want to forget again. And I'll hopefully do it on the veteran gamer show, but I'll do it here too. Uh, Richard Primrose gave me a resonate together mix. Uh, Amar sent me an awesome clip of Sirens and the Scottish... Um, <clears throat> yeah, whatever. Uh, and then Tainted Brain sent me a cherry orchard link, and I really appreciate that. So thank you to all of you uh, and everybody who sent me um, kind words when I tweeted about my leg cramp. And uh, yeah, I'm really lucky. You know, again, social media has a lot of positives with it. And so I'm thankful for all of those and former students and people I've met through video games and friends from New College or, or people I, I know through teaching. Um, I'm really blessed and fortunate. And I, I guess the real reason I want to do any of this, uh, the podcast, these live videos, is because if I can give back a little bit of what other people have given me in terms of community, in terms of support, in terms of seeing things in different light, in terms of getting new ways to think about stuff, um, then that's that's really what I'm I'm hoping to achieve here. So, um, yeah, I, I hope my words have been useful for something other than just goofiness and um, distracting you from your own thoughts. But sometimes that's useful too. The world needs clowns, doesn't it? So, bleh! anyway, that's it. Thank you all, and have a good rest of your week. I will stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful.